Welcome to Layers of Film, the show where mediocre people discuss masterful films the first Monday of each month. I'm your host, Austin Killian, joined by my co-host, Big T. Big T, how are you doing? I'm so great, Austin. We had a great conversation. (laughs) We just got done talking for like an hour, catching up, having a good time, even though it's been just a couple weeks. The next time we record, it's probably going to be like a month and a half later. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Yeah. I hope that everyone had... A great Christmas. <laughs> technically, this yeah, that's true. <laughs> technically, the show is going up. Happy 2022. <laughs> Happy 2022. We're recording on the 18th of December, <laughs> but uh, Merry Christmas to everyone. I hope it was great. You got all the presents you wanted. You saw all the family you wanted, and ignored all the rest. And hopefully, the world is still around. Who knows? Big T, did you have a great Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> Pause to insert commentary about Christmas. I'm not going to do that. Uh, Yeah, my Christmas was great, too. (laughs) And New Year's was great, too. I'm actually, like, I said it in the last episode, but picking out this this movie, I mean, it's not like an outright Christmas or a New Year's-themed movie, but for some reason, it's like pursuing goals, you know? And it's like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure if pursuing goals is the theme I would have attached to this movie, but hey, okay, okay, <laughs> it's it's a main drive for uh, Andrew Naiman. Yeah, I don't know. I, did you have anything that you wanted to talk about before we get into it? Um, no, I think I'm ready to jump in. Cool. Well, then, why? Oh, actually, I do want to say just real quick. Me and my wife went on a date last night, and we capped it off with watching. We've always heard about the movie Speed. Keanu Reeves is in it and Sandra Bullock and it's about like a bomber or whatever he's attached a bomb to a bus and you can't go under 50 miles per hour otherwise it'll explode or dude (laughs) I've heard people talk about this movie throughout the years like almost with the feeling like oh this movie must be great you know really all the things I've heard about speed are that it's like not good really yeah like it's so bad it's good kind of that's exactly what it is uh, when people talk like because anytime anyone talked about this movie to me it was always in the context of oh this is where people really started understanding that Keanu Reeves is a real actor and he can be in good films and stuff like that and so I was like oh this must be a great film then if this is like his big change you know dramatic change in his career it's not dude his acting wasn't even that great Sandra Bullock was probably the best part of the the movie and she was more of a comedic relief type of character slash love interest but it's the whole movie is just people throwing ideas at the board of like what kind of obstacles can we put in the way of this bus to slow it down and then they have to solve it somehow it's it's like it's so bad it's it's really bad there's like a group of kids that walk in the street they have to like divert for some reason a freaking garbage truck like backs into the road for no reason at all they have to divert isn't it like a highway Well, they have to get off the highway because there's like road construction or traffic or something. (laughs) And then they get on a new highway and all of a sudden the highway ends and they have to like jump off. They have to make this 50 foot jump so they can get off to the other side. You can tell that like someone was just sitting in L.A. traffic. It's just like, how can I make this into a movie? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Speed. Oh, great. Uh, It's so bad. But if you ever want to check that movie out, go for it. I should have been tipped off with the beginning credits because it was like the cheesiest music. The font of the the beginning credits was just really corny and old. And like Comic Sans. 
Yeah, well, no, not Comic Sans, <laughs> but just like sideways with like the what's that um like the gradient like going through it it's just so old school and then when the when the title of speed came up it did this super crappy like explosion sound like like those powerpoint animations <laughs> it was so ridiculous That's so funny. maybe they just like put a bunch of 12 year olds in a room together and were like write a movie for us and you can do the special effects. That's what I kept thinking throughout the movie. It's like maybe back in the day this was awesome to people, but this seemed like something we would have been like psyched about when we were like 12 years old. Oh, we'll do this. This will be awesome. Imagine there's a bus and it'll blow up if it goes slower than 50 miles an hour. <laughs> uh, anyway, it I would put it under the category of like it's so bad it's good. So if you like those types of movies, go ahead and watch it. Some of my favorite kind of movies are so bad they're good. <laughs> Don't I know it? Like uh, Ready or Not? No, I'm just kidding. That's actually not rude. No, no, that's like a good movie. Yeah, like I said during that episode, that is like a perfect seven out of ten. Yeah, it knows it, it knew what it wanted to be, and it was it perfectly. Yeah, but if you want to know more about that, you can go listen to the episode. Anyway, I just had to get that out before before we got into the show. But with that said, why don't I go ahead and give this film that we are covering on this episode the proper introduction it, in my opinion, deserves. It was released October 10th, 2014. Uh, the synopsis is a promising young drummer enrolls at a cutthroat music conservatory where his dreams of greatness are mentored by an instructor who will stop at nothing to realize a student's potential. It was directed by Damien Chazelle, written by Damien Chazelle, composed by Justin Hurwitz. The big actors are Miles Teller, who plays Andrew Naiman, J.K. Simmons, who plays Terrence Fletcher, Melissa Benoist as Nicole, and Paul Reiser as Jim Naiman. The budget was $3.3 million, and the box office earnings was $49 million. That's, that's, pre- that's pretty respectable. Only $3.3 million, and they, I mean, they, yeah. Did like ten no over ten times that that's pretty good, and uh, you I don't think you can uh, stream this anywhere. It's uh, available to rent or buy um, only, as far as I know, at the time of recording this. Maybe there will be a Christmas miracle. <laughs> Maybe uh, Big T. Overall thoughts. What did you think of this film? Yeah, this is one of those films that is a good watch, but very difficult to sit with. Mm. Like it's a very serious and at times dark film but a film that has a lot of interesting commentary and I feel like I could watch this multiple times and get something new from it every time like aesthetically and artistically I think it's fascinating yeah but yeah like a very heavy difficult watch but I thought it had a lot of really interesting commentary I I, I came away probably with more with with more questions than commentary I would say but I'm glad I watched it it's it's definitely um yeah, I just thought it had a lot of good commentary to go for. It is it is very interesting to me. Like I said in the last episode, this is probably my favorite film of all time. I can't think of a single film that really tops it for me. If I really sit and think with it, maybe I could, but just on a surface level, I think I think that it's I don't know, it's a masterpiece to me. I don't think there's any shot, any scene, any line wasted in this entire film. And even if there are moments where you think it's slow, which I don't personally think it is, it's very, oh, what's the word? 
not very intentional. Yeah. I was like trying to think of intentful. I'm like, that's not a word. Intent is very intentional. I agree. Um, is this a movie that you think you would watch more than once or not? I would need to be in the right headspace for it, which is in a dark place. Not necessarily a dark place, but like, and it's a movie that you really need like time to process and sit with, I would say for sure. Yeah. It's interesting because like Christopher Nolan films, like you want to rewatch those because you just don't understand like, you know, just like how scientifically something works. Like, I don't understand how that worked or the timing of it, mm-hmm. like the way that he edits films, you know, you're just like ton- kind of questioning like, oh, where did this even take place in the timeline? I don't even know. Yeah. Tenet kept me up for like three nights because I would sit in bed and be <laughs> like, wait, how does this work? <laughs> That's dude. Uh, just a quick aside. Tenet is the only movie that I could ever say that I only understand it when I'm not watching it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to summarize Tenet, too. Yeah, because yeah, it's like, I'll be like, oh, I totally get this movie. And then 15 minutes later, I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> it's like, how does that make sense? But this film is not challenging in that way of like, oh, how does that even make sense? It's more of like, a, I don't, again, like I said last episode, like, I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think one of the hallmarks of this movie is I don't think character development is the right word, hmm. but the the characters are incredibly complex. Yes. Like they just have so many layers to them. Even the secondary characters, I would say. Like that that I mean, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but that family dinner scene, I could write an entire dissertation about that conversation that happened at that dinner scene. Like that's something that any, if any of one of them sees a therapist, they will be deconstructing that conversation with their therapist for weeks. That is one of the best scenes. Phenomenal. Like, Oh, phenomenal. Oh man. Like that's like most of the scenes. I'm just like, Oh my gosh. Like, I can't believe that person just did that or said that, or like what's going on in their head right now. This is, I think that's why this movie speaks to me so much is because I'm, much more fascinated in the characters and what they're thinking, you know, yes. really like character study, character analysis, that type of stuff. And that, like you said, is pretty much the entire movie and just trying to understand what's going on in their head. Yeah. I was pretty much stressed the entire movie, like <laughs> not a high key stress, but like low key stressed the whole time. Yeah. Because, and I think it's a very aptly named film like Whiplash mm-hmm. because you're just kind of cruising along and then like, boom. Yeah. 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 <laughs> No, yeah, and th- that was something that I noted every single... There's so many moments when Fletcher is in either a chill... Like a completely different headspace, and then within an, a snap of a finger, he is immediately pissed off and ready to mm-hmm. you know, tear people's heads off because they are barely messing something up. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a really good portrayal of an abuser. Mm-hmm. Because Fletcher is someone that is it Neiman or Nyman? It's it's Neiman. Neiman. Yeah. He wants his Fletcher's approval so bad, and he it's like so important to be involved um, and have a relationship with Fletcher. But and Fletcher knows that, and he exploits it, and he creates some really toxic environments. But I think that that feeling of like Fletcher is not 
safe to be around. I have to be on high alert whenever he's around is like very, very representative of an abuser in any, any kind of context. But, um, like I never felt safe whenever Fletcher was in (laughs) scene. I was just like, like I said, sort of low key stressed, like, okay, things are sort of chill right now, but they could change in a second. And I think that like, I, I think that the music, especially both the score and the music that we here in the the movie is really representative of that sense of whiplash Mm. yeah i mean there's the whole there's a whole song titled whiplash yeah that's part of where the name comes from and then there's like yeah there's a lot of different ways because because of how fast fletcher or a lot of different ways that this movie um can represent whiplash there's the song title of one of the pieces that they're actually playing there's the car crash um you know, maybe two thirds of the way through the film, which is a nut scene also, by the way, it's so good. It's so good. And, and then there's just, yeah, how quickly that the uh, uh, temper can change and how like, even, even in a way, because whiplash is like, what, like your head, like basically just immediately being thrust, you know, backwards or in a certain direction. And when it's not ready or prepared or something like that, and you can get whiplash from that. Um, like even how many times you see people turn their heads to see what like you know what i mean there there's even physical representation yeah no i think like i said whiplash is like a perfect name for it i mean i think that the ending scene to this movie is a perfect representation of that because i mean there's literally a scene where fletcher is like i'm i will gouge your eyes out and then a minute later he's like buddy buddy with Andrew or Neiman or I always forget his name. <laughs> That's actually one of the questions that I wanted to, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, which, which version of Fletcher do you think is the right, like the real Fletcher? Like, do we ever see the real Fletcher ever? I don't know. Uh, I guess I'm confused. Like, do you have two versions in mind? Cause the only version I see is the abusive one. There's buddy, buddy, you know, like, especially like the first time, like the first practice that Andrew is at and, Fletcher is pretty chill with everyone at the beginning and then he says oh oh actually no he's not really chill with everyone because he throws that kid out of the out of the band but um he says oh like let's all take 10 when we get back the squeakers on and and he's you know kind of freaking out because he just saw this kid get thrown out of the band for being out quote unquote out of tune even though it actually wasn't him it was someone else that was out of tune and he's looking over the chart and trying to you know make sure that he doesn't mess up the timing at all and then Fletcher pulls him aside and starts talking to him and just getting to know him and trying to make him feel at ease. You know, like, hey, don't worry about what anyone else thinks. Just go in there and have a good time. He's like, OK, because you're here for a reason, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I am here for a reason, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, cool. You know, super buddy, buddy. There's, have fun. There's that. <laughs> yeah. There's that side of Fletcher. And then there's super abusive side of Fletcher, right, of throwing chairs yelling all sorts of profanity and slurs and whatever and then i this is actually kind of um kind of like a trivia but not really a trivia there's actually a deleted scene that they cut out of the movie did you happen to see this scene it's with fletcher in his home and um all it is is just him putting on a record you see a picture of him with a wife and a daughter either they've divorced him or they're dead i do not know but he just puts on a record and kind of sits on the couch and like cries and, um, or not cries, but he gets emotional. I don't know exactly what the meaning of that is, but there's also 
I guess technically that side of Fletcher that we could have seen if they decided to keep that in the movie. But like, do you like, what do you, I guess, let me revise the question. What do you think the real Fletcher is? I think the real Fletcher is an abuser. Really? You think so? Like that would be my short answer. Yeah. I think that every moment of sincerity or camaraderie or emotion virtually is always a tool that he's using to manipulate and, be able to abuse his students in the future. So even that scene when he's asking Naaman about um, his family and if he has musicians in his family and stuff, immediately in the next scene, he uses that against him. And he yeah. uses those intimate details about Naaman's life to abuse him, essentially. And so to me, the core of his character, at least in the movie, is an abuser and everything else that we see is sort of dressing that he intentionally employs to get what he wants. Interesting. That does make sense. I guess you could depict it in, I don't know, for me, it gets gray a little bit. And that's why I think this movie challenges me a lot because to me, Fletcher is like the, the definition of the ends justify the means. Like he is the definition of that because that's what he bases his entire purpose in life off of is trying to create the next Charlie Parker or whatever, you know, in any way necessary because he's trying to make great people. And it's interesting to think about that because I don't know if it is, I mean, in a way it it is an accomplishment for him. So I guess he is doing it for himself, but at the same time, he's trying to create someone who he thinks can only be great through these means and maybe he thinks that he's doing someone else a service by doing that. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot to say on this. And there's like a lot, I think, like I said, it's a very complex film, very complex characters. So we could have, you know, this episode could be four plus hours. But I wouldn't say, I would say on the surface, Fletcher sees himself as the ends justify the means. But I see Fletcher's character as representing abusers will do whatever mental gymnastics they need to to justify their abuse. Because who in the movie do we know that Fletcher has educated that is a good musician, that has risen to that level and is successful? Uh, Sean, 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 what's his face? I don't remember the kid's name. Sean Casey. Sean Casey, yeah. But he... Kills himself. True. And the drummer, he quits. He goes to med school, which, I mean, that's kind of funny that, like, he would see med school as easier than being a drummer. Like, it's kind of (laughs) the opposite, you know, like, stereotypically. But he makes all these excuses for why he inflicts the abuse on the people that he inflicts abuse on. But to me, it's him just trying to find reasons to justify being abusive and being manipulative and being a horrible person because Hmm. he, and there's that scene at the jazz club where they're sort of having that conversation at the table and there, he, he again, Fletcher again, shares that story about Charlie Parker. Then I think, I think Fletcher says, I was there to push people beyond what's expected of them. Otherwise we're depriving the world of the next Charlie Parker. And then, um, Naaman says something along the lines of, like, well, like... Is there a line? 
yeah he asks if there's a line i thought you were asking me if there's a like a line that he delivered but oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah is there a line and then he essentially just says like no there's not a line because a charlie parker would never have given up but to me that's more indicative of all of these people could have been charlie parkers but they just didn't want to endure your abuse and i'm going to go on a little of a tirade here um (laughs) but i think it's really interesting so did you read the did you read up about the story about charlie parker and joe jones yeah it's not it's not accurate what he's what he depicts yep exactly and i think that that to me is why um his character isn't the ends justify the means his character is like abusers will do whatever they want to justify their abuse because the real so the story he tells is like oh joe jones threw it and it nearly decapitated charlie parker and then charlie parker became the best or had like the best solo or whatever but like the actual retelling of it is that joe jones like just sort of threw the symbol at his feet to signify like get off the stage type stuff and to me that's just like very much abusers have this mental narrative that they tell themselves essentially it's a lie but they tell themselves it to justify their horrible actions and i think we see that with fletcher where he is like trying to justify being a horrible person but at the end of the day i think it's more about him being able to exercise power and abuse over these people who he knows will tolerate it because there's a goal that they want to achieve it's really interesting because i actually don't see it that way at all and maybe it is just an act who knows i mean only the director really knows but I don't know what his intentions are, and maybe he wants to keep it up. Damien wants to keep it up for interpretation. But just the fact that he is so buddy-buddy, part of me does kind of feel like that is sort of the real Fletcher. Like, he wants to be buddy-buddy, and he wants to... He just truly wants to see the next great musician in whatever he's decided to focus on at that time, because it, it really seems like he just focused on the drummer right then and there. Maybe there are some students in the past that he focuses on, um, but at least at this moment, he's decided that he wants to find the next Charlie Parker. And the fact that he does just uh, flip the switch so quickly, the way that it's acted out by J.K. Simmons, and I would assume it's intended this way, I could be wrong, that he is just flipping the switch because he's realizing that he needs to be on and he needs to start yelling at these people and making them terrible so that they... To really test them and see what they are willing to be put through to be, quote unquote, great or one of the greats. I mean, anyone can interpret it their own way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I I, I agree. I think you can kind of interpret it. But my question is, if his goal really is to find the next Charlie Parker, then what is the purpose of the scene at the very end where he essentially lies to Naaman about playing Whiplash to like embarrass him in front of all of these sort of uh, decision makers in the jazz world. Like, what's the point of that? I think it was originally to get revenge because he got him kicked out of his own school and his own band at Schaefer, Fletcher. And I think there's a very key moment because Naaman gets back on stage. Fletcher is a little shocked, like, oh, he's back up. Let's see what happens here. And he starts announcing the next song. He says, let's slow things down. And then Naaman interrupts him in the middle of announcing the next song, which I freaking love, dude. I absolutely love that moment. And starts uh, playing Caravan. Everyone else in the band is like, what are you doing? And he goes over to the bases and he's like, I'll cue you in. We're doing Caravan or whatever. 
and he just keeps going and then the, the basis goes in Fletcher looks a little pissed a little confused a little perplexed and as time goes on you see Fletcher's face change from being pissed to proud to excited because as Caravan is being played he kind of has a proud look on his face like Okay, he's got the chops. He's playing this like masterfully. And then once the lights go off, right? The song's ended, but this is this is the best ending to any movie ever in my opinion. And the lights go off, the lights come back on because Name is still playing the drums and he's decided to take it upon him on himself to have his Charlie Parker moment and play the best solo that anyone has ever seen or heard. And that's the moment where I think you see it on Fletcher's face, and that's how I see it, of, or this is how I see it, of excitement, I've done it, we have created the next Charlie Parker. This is his Charlie Parker moment, and we are now equals. And you can see that with the fact that Naaman ha- is playing his insane solo, the, the crash or cymbal, I don't know enough about the drums, like falls and Fletcher goes and fixes it for him. You never see him ever, ever help anyone else. And once he's realized that Naaman has done it and he's peaked, he's peaked basically that and reached like his fullest potential, at least with Fletcher, that he is now on his level because he goes and fix the symbol, fixes the symbol for him. And then there's a mutual respect between the two of them where they are on the same level where he still is leading him as the, um, what's the word? Maestro? No. Conductor. Conductor. And Naaman is following his uh, instructions, I guess, conducting or whatever at the same time, because there's a part where he like flips his fingers, like hit all the symbols now, you know, and, and he does it and they're both smiling and looking at each other and they've achieved, achieved this like great success together and that's why I feel like it wasn't all about abuse. It was using that abuse to create something great. It's it's it all hinges on that scene to me. I don't know if you think any different. No, I mean I can definitely see that interpretation. And again, like you said, everyone's gonna interpret it differently. Who knows what the director kind of had in mind? But I just feel like that so this part where Naaman is sort of embarrassed and he runs off the stage and then he turns around and runs back on. I would say Fletcher doesn't look shocked. Fletcher looks angry. Fletcher looks angry that Naaman had the audacity to come back on stage. And I agree with you. There does come a point where that initial emotion turns into being proud and then being excited. So I think that that part I I would agree with. But I would say that Naaman is a successful musician, not because of the abuse that Fletcher imposes on on him, but in spite of the abuse. I Hmm. don't think that the abuse that Fletcher put Naaman through made him the drummer that he was. I think that it gave him a complex. And you see that with Sean Casey, right? Where the lawyer says that the parents are like Sean Casey developed anxiety and depression and they claim that it was during Fletcher's class and stuff. So to me, it's and again, I think that this is like the the core theme of this movie is like, do we need to have abuse to reach greatness? And if we do need abuse to reach greatness, is it worth 
putting someone through abuse. Mm. That to me is kind of like the core theme that this is this is exploring. I I would say personally it comes down to the individual. I think just going from like oh do you need the abuse to be great or to push yourself to your fullest potential? I mean, it's definitely up to the individual because there's there are people in life that need positive reinforcement and there are people in life that kind of thrive off not need but thrive off of positive enforcement and there are people that thrive off of negative enforcement i think and i guess there is the question of like is it worth it i don't know i can't really i can't it depends on the individual and what you're trying to achieve because if the individual thrives off of negative enforcement and they want to pursue the end result of that negative enforcement then i would say to them it's worth it unless i suppose unless you're a sean casey but I don't think, I mean, who knows? Because the movie just ends after that solo. But I would think that Naaman isn't like Sean Casey. In, in As far as that struggle, I don't think he, just the way that he looks afterwards, he seems really pleased with himself and that he's done it and that he's achieved this greatness in his head. And I would say that that's not going to, give him too much depression and anxiety, but it might lead to an overconfidence that leads to maybe destructive behavior down the line, I suppose. that I would say that that's what would happen to him. That's that's my interpretation of how it, it would go on from there. But yeah, I just, I think, I think it is completely up to the individual. Yeah, and I think that this is one of the great things about this movie is like, you and I watch the same movie, but we have two very different takeaways, right? Like, yeah. I, I, my just like my, my approach would be Fletcher should not have been in a position to be able to abuse these students, regardless of the outcome. If they made you know quote unquote great musicians or not, I do not think that the abuse justifies it because I think that you can get the same or similar results without the abuse that Fletcher puts these students through. And I think that that's really poignant to me in the fact that Fletcher's retelling of the Charlie Parker story is inaccurate because True. that that is the whole reason why Fletcher justifies his abuse be, because Joe Jones did it to Charlie Parker and look how great Charlie Parker was. But just the fact that that is not an accurate representation of the story to me indicates this idea that like yeah positive and negative reinforcement are things but like when does negative reinforcement become abuse and how do abusers rationalize abusive behavior because i don't know i guess like to me i see fletcher as someone who has really convinced himself that he wants to just make the greatest musician musicians out there and create the next Charlie Parker, but I see that as just him having found a justification to do horrible things to people in a context in which they will let horrible things happen because they think that they need to let those things happen. So like one one way I think that this is particularly noticeable is when he's telling the band about Sean Casey's death. Um, I mean, obviously the one thing is he lies about the car crash, right? Or at least yeah. he doesn't know that Sean Casey... Oh. Um, killed himself he says that it's a car crash but if you notice when he's sort of eulogizing Sean Casey and he's talking about him all he really I think he ends it by saying he was a beautiful player you don't get anything about Sean Casey as a human as a student as just a well-rounded 
person outside of the music. Like the way, and I think that the dialogue is very intentional here. The way that Fletcher talks about Sean Casey is like the only thing that was good about him or the only thing that was important about him was that he was good at playing music. And Mm -hmm. I think that that goes back to this idea that Fletcher really is all about having this justification of like, oh, I'm doing these really horrible things, but it's because look how great these people are. But at the end of the day, if these great musicians kill themselves because you are so abusive, or if these great musicians quit music or are forced out of music because you're so abusive, then like where, what's the point of all of this? Right. I think that's a huge flaw of humans just in general is kind of like pushing out your beliefs and thoughts onto everyone else because he has this very screwed up belief that you need this type of abuse to be great. I I do agree with you there. I don't think the abuse is necessary, but maybe just some other, maybe for Naaman specifically negative, some kind of negative reinforcement I think is maybe necessary. Just more, it, it could have been anything as simple as like, Oh, you're just not doing really good, man. Like you got to pick it up, dude. That's probably all he actually needed. He didn't need all that, you know, physical, verbal, emotional abuse, but just some sort of negative, a tamer form of negative reinforcement. But sorry, going back, I kind of got off point a little bit, but there's just the flaw of human beings of putting your own beliefs on, on other people. And going back to what you're talking about with Sean Casey, the only thing he recognizes from him is that he was, you know, a, you know, a great whatever player. I can't remember what it was. And his idea of success is what defined that other human being, that other individual. And that kind of also goes with that uh, Naaman as well. His idea of success is, oh, what what is the quote? Like dying at the age of 34, drunken alone, but still people talking about him around mm-hmm. the dinner table. Yeah. Um, even though he's dead and they don't know him. That's his idea of success. And the fact that he projects that onto other people, that's the flaw. I think there's no problem with you believing that. That's fine if that's your idea of success and if that's what you want out of life. But trying to convince other people that that is success is the flaw. Yeah, I I mean, like I said, there's so much to talk about. Like you were talking and there was like five different things that I wanted to respond to. But... (laughs) I don't know. I just keep on going back to the story that Fletcher tells about Charlie Parker because he tells it, I think he tells it twice in the movie. So it's clearly sort of this driving motivator for him, but it's used as a way to justify the abuse, right? Like, oh, you need to go through these really hard things I'm going to put you through because look what Charlie Parker, he went through this really hard thing and he's great now. But just the fact that like Charlie Parker is this great musician that everyone in the movie agrees is phenomenal and he didn't even have to put up with the level of abuse that Fletcher is saying his students need to go through. Mm -hmm. To me, that is very indicative that like, it's very much an indictment of negative reinforcement. And I'm not going to like quote psychology papers and stuff, but (laughs) I know that like positive reinforcement is, has been proven to be a much stronger motivator than negative reinforcement. And 
I don't know. I just think that they like do a really good job of exploring that idea of negative reinforcement because like literally every time Fletcher's in a room with his musicians, their heads are down, they're nervous, they're not smiling, they're like very physically uncomfortable and very physically stressed out. And I don't think that that is an environment in which you breed success. I think that you can breed good musicians, I guess, to an extent, but you are not breeding like well-rounded, healthy individuals because yeah, sure, Naaman is a phenomenal drummer because of what Fletcher's done. But we're clearly seeing that his personal life is being very negatively impacted. His, his, his mental and emotional health is being negatively impacted. And to me, that's sort of the, the takeaway that I have is negative enforcement isn't a good thing, obviously. And like, but people will justify it. Not only the abusers, but the person being abused will justify it. Like none of the band members stand up for anyone being abused. None of the band members speak out against Fletcher. It's really only Naaman, but we're sort of like following his character. But to me, it's just sort of this like rationalization of how society sort of says that abuse is okay if, you know, you become this really successful person. But to me, the underlying message is like, but when push comes to shove, is negative reinforcement really all that effective? And the story of Charlie Parker not actually being abused to me signifies like it's actually not all that it's cracked up to be. Yeah, when you were talking, you mentioned um, how all of this stuff and his obsession with being a great drummer affects his own personal life, his social life and everything. It is uh, it is something that I really picked up on um, <laughs> with Andrew because he's very... He's very shy and just by nature, and and that comes from his dad, I believe. I think they really do a good job at showing that that definitely comes from his dad because his dad lets himself get walked out, like walked over by anyone, really. Although when he's like more in a, a personal space with Andrew, you know, he's he's a lot less. He kind of takes control of the situation a little bit more than with other people around, but. This gum this also goes with Andrew as well. And I think that I think that Andrew has this weird cycle that he goes through uh because of that, because he has no confidence, but then once something gives him a little bit of confidence, he feels like he can be social, right? And he asks because he, he makes it into the studio band, and that's when he decides to go ask out Nicole. And he's super happy. He walks away happy. He sleeps like a baby. He's got a smile on his face. And then immediately the cycle shifts into, uh uh-oh, this girl is distracting me because he sleeps through, maybe his alarm didn't go off. I have no idea. but Or he forgot to set an alarm. But because he was sleeping like a baby and maybe was just so excited about that, he forgot to set an alarm. He sleeps past six o'clock, which is when he's supposed to meet for his very first practice, six o'clock in the morning, according to Fletcher. Actually, it was at nine, but that was another tool, another way that Fletcher was abusing him. But um, he sleeps through and barely makes it, or he makes it late. And I think that's like the cycle that he keeps going through. Like he gets some sort of success. It makes him feel like he can have, quote unquote, the girl. And then the girl becomes a distraction to him. And so he has to let go of all distractions to be a success. But because he doesn't have those quote unquote distractions, 
I don't think he has enough purpose. And so he just goes through the cycle again to where he's just totally, he's obsessed over the, the idea of being such a great drummer that it kills him almost <laughs> like actually in the, the car accident scene, he's so obsessed with getting his part at that final competition or whatever. And then he realizes that he's gone too far into it. He kind of loses his purpose a little bit. He doesn't have a girl anymore. He doesn't have the drumming anymore. And then the moment that he meets up with Fletcher again and he says, Hey, why don't you come join the JVC thing? Then he has that confidence again to call Nicole again and see if she wants to come to the thing. It's this weird, it just keeps going around and around in my head. And I feel like that would pretty much be the cycle of his life throughout the rest of the rest of it. Did you pick up on that at all? Yeah, for sure. I think we definitely see Andrew develop in a really interesting way because his character is solely invested in his drummer identity. Like that is his driving purpose. That is his goal in life. Like he will like literally a car crash will not stop him from like being a drummer. But I think that you see how that becomes really problematic because he like eventually does hit like a really low low for him. And I think something that's really interesting as well. And again, the, the dialogue in this movie, I think, is very intentional. But when Andrew and Fletcher are having that conversation about Charlie Parker in the jazz club and he tells it again how Joe Jones threw the symbol yada 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 he talks about Charlie a little bit more and he said Charlie when he you know he went home and he practiced and he had one goal and that goal was to never be laughed at ever again to me that is a very very interesting way to frame Charlie Parker wanting to be a good drummer because I mean, and maybe Charlie Parker like literally said that and that's a quote or something, but like to me, I would not see Charlie Parker practicing to be a really good drummer as he didn't want to be laughed at. That comes across to me as like a very ego driven and a very like pride driven reason. To me, I would think he would do all that practicing because he wants to be the best drummer that he can be. But the way Fletcher sees it is that it's not about actually being the best. It's about pride and it's about anxiety, which are two central themes because Naaman is very much driven by anxiety. And I would argue that Fletcher is very much driven by pride. And we see that because he is willing to risk his own reputation and the very reputation of his band just to get revenge on mm. Naaman at the very end. So to me, that's really indicative that like pride is a really driving factor to Fletcher and he will, I mean, you also see it when he gives the friend, the redhead, like he invites him into the band. Connolly? Yeah. Later Fletcher says like, oh, I just did it to sort of like egg you on. But it's like, okay, you are not driven by like good intentions here. Like it very much is, I'm reading it at least very much as like, you are here to like abuse and manipulate and extort and coerce and just be a really bad person to these humans who you have given, you've been given a, a leadership and a power position over. And you were just trying to find every way you can to like make these people's lives miserable. And you're using like greatness as a justification for that. Yeah, that's interesting because I think in his mind, it it is all about greatness. It's, it's not about using greatness to justify it, but... Um, like because he wants to be abusive. I think it's more about he just really wants to be great and he wants other people to be great, but he thinks the only way, his flawed version of how to get it is abuse. 
I, I agree with you. I think okay. that Fletcher thinks that oh, okay. he it's about greatness. I think that Fletcher has convinced himself that and I, I this from my understanding, again, I'm not a psychologist, but like this is very much like something that narcissists and abusers will do is they will tell a lie so much that they convince even themselves that that lie is true. And I think that we are seeing Fletcher do that. We're seeing Fletcher find reasons to justify being an abuser to the extent that he sees it as he, he believes the justification in the lie. Yeah. Something that's interesting that I just thought of uh, going back to that deleted scene. It just, it kind of makes me wonder because of that deleted scene that they didn't include in the, in the actual film that you see, you see him with his wife and child and he puts on the music and he gets emotional. I would assume that that probably is a song that he's putting on that was maybe close to him and his family and he gets emotional over it. I wonder if because of the loss and whatever shape it is of his family that got rid of purpose and he has desperately tried to find his purpose ever since then. And that's where this weird skewed version of the Charlie Parker story came to be where he just kind of convinced himself that that's how it is. Because I'd really truly believe that he thinks that that's how it went down. And I wonder if that came from his loss of purpose. And people get kind of desperate for things when they feel like they don't have purpose, I think. I mean, there's definitely been moments in my life where I've been like super depressed and I'm desperate to find normalcy again. And I find myself not being the person that I was when I was actually quote unquote normal. (laughs) And so I wonder if he's just really trying to find that purpose and this is what he settled on and he is so obsessed with it and kind of on a one track mind and laser focused on it that he's just willing to do whatever he thinks it takes to achieve it. Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, I I would also agree with you that I think I would agree that Fletcher his version of the Charlie Parker story is, I think he really thinks that's what happened. Mm. I don't think that he's intentionally lying about that. But again, that to me goes back to like, Fletcher has told this lie to himself so much that he thinks that that's a real story. He thinks that Charlie Parker was nearly decapitated. (laughs) And the fact that that's not what actually happened in reality, that like the way Fletcher is seeing the world is fundamentally different than reality that just to me goes to show to reinforce the idea that Fletcher is an abuser it's not that he sort of is a good guy that does bad things like the core component of him is an abuser and obviously that's speaking as like a media character because people in real life are very complex and like obviously there are abusers out in the world but they are very like complex people not to excuse their behavior but I think that we are very much meant to take away from this that Fletcher has maybe unconsciously deceived himself in order to justify really really problematic and really bad behavior he's a very interesting character for sure All these characters are very interesting. I totally agree. And I think this is something that we see in real life, like particularly with certain like components of society. So like one thing that you do see a lot is like in very demanding religions, like people will move into those religions because they 
want to be abusive and manipulative and they have found a structure that lets them thrive. And so I think that we're seeing that with Fletcher where he's found a context in which he can be abusive and just be a really bad person. And like it's society says that it's okay. Um, And I think that that is very much at play here because that was one of the questions I had was like, why did the school let him get away with this for so long? Like (laughs) everyone around him is sort of enabling this behavior because again, they sort of see that the ends justify the means. But I just think that with Fletcher specifically, we're seeing a character who very much sought out a context in which he can like do bad things and not be called out on doing those bad things. Yeah, that's something that I noticed for sure. Like the real first taste that we get of Fletcher is when he, well, actually, I mean, the the beginning of the movie starts with uh, Naaman playing the drums and Fletcher kind of sees him or whatever, recognizes that he's got some drive and tries to see if he's worthy of the studio band, decides that he's not. Um, at least, at least maybe makes Andrew believe that he's not, um, maybe that was another part of it. I don't, uh, his master plan, but you go a little bit later when they're at just the regular band with Connolly on, you know, as a core drummer and all the other people and he swings the doors wide open, not caring about the fact that they're going to probably make a mark in the wall. He comes in. And basically forces like like the the conductor just knows that he needs to get off and let Fletcher do his thing. You can see it on his face. He's a little annoyed. But and yet, like, it's just expected, you know, which is so that is a weird that is a weird thing just for like if I were the conductor, I'd be like, nah, dude, get out. Like you come back in the right way, you know, like you open that door correctly. Um, But no, he just lets it happen, which kind of tells me that this. Either the school doesn't know enough or they're willing to let Fletcher, like he somehow has this insane reputation that it's okay. Well, I think he's, I think he's won the school a lot of prestige because he's like, I'm not going to start losing now. Good point. I think that the, and again, I'm not making excuses for Fletcher. I think that he's an abuser and he's toxic and he's not like a good character fundamentally. But I think there's also something to be said about the systems of power that are complicit or at the very least passive in allowing all this abuse, because I'm sure that the school has heard (laughs) that Fletcher throws chairs at students. And I mean, those rumors have to make it back to the administration, but, and we, we see this in real life when like a system is benefiting from an abuser or benefiting from getting some sort of prestige or whatever it may be from someone who's very problematic. They are very reluctant to, pull the plug on that unless they are explicitly called out like the lawyer does. And so I think that it sort of speaks to this wider idea of like, not only are there abusers that exist that intentionally seek out environments in which they can get away with their abuse, but it also speaks to the levels of systemic and individual complicity when we allow like really bad things to happen because, you know, we quote unquote, like, sort of justify it so yeah there's like a lot of questions that that i have because you know that these students are going home and telling friends and families and family members and loved ones about this really problematic behavior but are they though that's kind of a question like maybe maybe one or two but 
the fact that Andrew gets in the car accident. He goes on. He starts playing. Somehow, I don't know why Fletcher would even let him play if there's blood all over him. That immediately just the appearance of blood on him should tarnish like the reputation from there. And it's like, oh, I need to get Naaman off the stage right now. But Andrew, you know, realizes that he can't play anymore. He kind of stops. Fletcher comes up and says, Neiman, you're done. And, you know, obviously um, Andrew processes that a little bit and realizes that you did this to me. He runs. He tackles him to the ground, says all sorts of stuff, you know, yells at him, curses at him. People escort him off the stage. But then you get to the lawyer and pretty much right after that. And he's kind of in denial. And he's like, why would you do this to me, dad? And uh, he didn't do anything. Like he actually says that, like Fletcher didn't do anything or whatever. And then once there's a moment of like, hey, you'll be like, this is a private thing. Like he won't know who did it. Then he kind of starts opening up. But I would assume that a lot of other people that were in that band would also sort of seem that, you know, feel the same way where they would not want to tell other people and just be like, but it it doesn't matter what the behavior is. He has such a reputation that if I'm not in that band, I won't make it, you know? And so I wonder how many people actually did tell anyone. I mean... I guess when I said that, I'm I'm sure that there are like are band members who like go home to like friends or a significant other and have like a breakdown, like because that's just sort of the national the natural reaction to yeah. being in a really high stress situation is you're gonna have like you're gonna release that emotion in some way. So I'm sh- I, I guess the point that I was just trying to make is like there's no way that this is like a guarded secret, like. People, people outside of this room have to know to some degree the level of abuse that uh, Fletcher is inflicting on these band members, but really nobody cares, especially no one with institutional power cares mm. until Sean Casey kills himself, and not even until then. It's not until Naaman gets in a car accident and tries to play and is like literally covered in blood on stage in front of a bunch of other people, so... But you kind of mentioned something, the part where um, Andrew charges at Fletcher and tackles him. To me, uh, something that this movie does really, really well is explores some of the like cascading impacts of being abused and being in an abusive relationship. Because, you know, you hear about like the abuse cycle or the fact that like, People who get abused often tend to sort of turn into abusers themselves. Um, And I think that like on a very superficial level, people are like, that doesn't make sense. Like, why would you be mean to other people if you got abused or whatever? But I think that this movie explores that really well through the lens of like powerlessness, because at the very beginning of the movie, and this is something maybe I'm just reading into it, but like Andrew's a really sweet kid. He's really dedicated to being a drummer, but he's really sweet. Like even Nicole says like, you never, you know, your eyes were glued to the floor, like pretty shy kid. Even the scene where he puts raisinets in the popcorn and his dad's like, oh, you want this? And then he's like, no, I just eat them, eat around them. Like he's very considerate almost to a fault where like he's sort of putting himself in the bad situation to appease other people and to help them sort of be at peace and at comfort. And then an hour later, you have him literally charging someone on a stage in front of other witnesses saying, I'm going to kill you. And you see sort of how being a victim in an abusive relationship has changed 
Andrew for the worse. And we don't just see it with Andrew. We see it in a lot of other people. We see it in um, Tanner, the other main drummer, and he verbally abuses Andrew multiple times. Um, and then you see it with with Andrew particularly because that's who the movie is following but you see him sort of abuse his family members at that dinner table you see him sort of abuse Nicole um verbally not physically verbally um you see him abuse uh, verbally abuse Connolly and specifically you see this because Fletcher refers to Connolly he he sort of says something derogatory about his red hair and oh, being yeah. Irish or something and then like the next time Andrew and Connolly have a negative interaction, what does Andrew use to insult Connolly? He brings up his red hair. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that like the dialogue and the way that they, this movie like demonstrates how people who are abused often sort of become abusers in a sense. And again, not justifying any behavior, but it's very understandable to the extent of like Andrew feels incredibly powerless in this relationship with Fletcher. He's seeing sort of like how Fletcher is driving him. He can't really get back at Fletcher. So that's that aggression and that anger and that powerlessness is going to seep out in other ways. And I think that this movie just explores that concept really well. Yeah, that's a good point. That like opened up my eyes a little bit to uh, 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 what we were talking about in Pan's Labyrinth with the mom, <laughs> with Carmen, and just uh, projecting that, you know, kind of anger or frustration with the powerlessness of, of, on the people that are around you, even if it's your own daughter. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, yeah, 100%. That's something that I noted a lot was just how everyone just kind of projected that onto everyone else around them. All the negative negativity that they were experiencing was projected on everyone else around them, which is so funny. And that's, I I want to give, you know, some accolades, like some congratulations to Miles Teller because, dude, he does an amazing job at... Every every single part of this, because you could see, I guess he does an amazing job at the transformation that Naaman goes through, because he he is so shy and he's so considerate and he's so sweet, just like you said, and then even something like the confidence booster that he got, and he asked Nicole out and he's still like really sweet or whatever, but when you go on to the date and he's been through a few things, he has this weird fake confidence. And just kind of like, you know, pride in himself that you could see. Like he acts a little differently. He kind of acts like, oh, I don't really care, blah, blah, blah. You know, like I, I'm I'm on this greater purpose type of thing. You, you don't have a major picked out. You don't, you know what I mean? Like 100%. he kind of has this weird fake confidence about him. I would say it's not even fake confidence. I think that he is, Fletcher's abusiveness is like rubbing off on him because mm. I don't remember how that scene goes down, but I remember that scene. That's kind of like uh, the date. Yeah, the date because he like asks Nicole not rapid fire questions, but he asks her questions. I think he asks her like, um, you know, what school are you? What school do you go to? What are you studying? What do you want to do? And she doesn't really have any answers for him. And she gets to the point where she's really uncomfortable, and she yeah. feels like she, needs, she gets defensive. She gets defensive because. Fletcher or Andrew is sort of turning into Fletcher in that sense because he's like really starting to violate her boundaries and because his own boundaries have been violated by Fletcher I think that that is normal for him and you sort of see Nicole get defensive and then Andrew sort of like realize like oh you know what maybe I crossed a boundary but that abuse that he suffers so chronically 
under Fletcher erases his ability to really see and respect other people's boundaries. And that really, really comes out in the family dinner scene where he is disrespectful and verbally abusive to multiple family members. Here's the weird thing. Here's the interesting thing about that dinner scene, though, is. I mean, yeah, he probably comes across like on the surface more of an a-hole than everyone else. But on a weird like sub level, everyone's an a-hole to him. Yeah, they all suck, too. (laughs) Dude, it's so weird. I love that. That dinner scene is it's brilliant, man. It's a beautiful scene. It's so uncomfortable. But it's it's just like so nuanced and so multi-layered because you can see he's like really excited that he is like a core band member. Yes. And nobody cares. And in fact, they don't just not care. They continually place other people's accomplishments above his own. So it's understandable that he gets to a point where he wants to like push back and is angry because no one is like. Uh, acknowledging his success. Yeah. But again, instead of being like, hey, this like really hurts my feelings that you guys don't care or sort of addressing the the negative emotion in, in a productive, positive, constructive way, he immediately lashes out like Fletcher does verbally. It's... It's it's, a, so, it's an amazing scene. It's, it's so brilliant, man. It's because very uncomfortable, but it's very well done. Everything is so intentional it's like it's perfectly placed the fact that um aunt emma i believe is her name is just like oh what's going on like what's new with you and he's like oh yeah i'm, I'm a member of the court or like like drumming's going really great i'm a part of like the most you know the biggest band and then like as he's saying that then people come in everyone immediately forgets about what he was saying because yep. apparently like most likely they weren't even invested in it anyway and that's why they immediately jumped off to acknowledge the two kids that came in and Travis and whatever. I think Travis is really the only one that matters in that because he's the one that's fighting with Andrew the most. But Uncle Frank, I think is his name, starts you know talking about his kids and not really caring about what Andrew's talking about. And, and then they start acknowledging each other's success. Oh, like Travis is, you know, the, whatever the frick, like he just won a big thing. I don't, I don't care. I'm a big I'm a football thing. Yeah. I'm not a sports <laughs> fan, so I don't really, I don't know. But and I don't remember, but there's that. And then, and then this, and the other kid is doing this and Jim, all the success that you're having with uh, the teacher of the year. And then Emma's just like, and Andrew with his drumming. Yeah. His drummer thing. Mm -hmm. I noticed that too. Like she very specifically compliments every single person. And then when it comes to Andrew, it's like the vague, like, oh yeah, your drummer thing. And then even when he does begin to talk about it, his family pushes back his cousin. I think it's his cousin or Travis or whatever his name is like, oh, well, isn't it isn't it subjective to like, how do you know who wins the thing? And then the, the uncle's like, uh, oh, does that mean that you're going to get a job or whatever? Like no one can just like sit there and congratulate Andrew because they don't understand. Yeah. And I think, too, this is partially why he and a lot of other musicians in this context, but why Andrew lets Fletcher get away with the abuse is because Fletcher is like the only person in this movie that we've seen who understands how big of a deal it is to be in Mm. the position that Andrew is in. And I think that that's part of the reason why he sort of tolerates that level of abuse is because he's not getting the support that he needs from um, his his family. Yeah. I I do want to also say like, even though... Andrew is being an a-hole in the dinner scene. 
Um, his comebacks are so freaking good, dude. Yeah, it's really interesting because Andrew is very much trying to get his family or these people to like care about the fact that he's like a drummer and not only a drummer but like the youngest drummer but then like no one is cares about it frank is like oh do you have any friends there and they say something that like success is about like having relationships and having people in your life that remember you and he's like i want like random strangers to remember me yeah and then he sort of talks crap about football and travis is says oh if you think football is so easy come play with us and andrew says four words you'll never hear from the nfl or something like that yeah. so it's a it's a great response uncle frank is also just like well at least at an older age they'll have friends around them and you're just like yeah i'm sure they'll do a great job on the school board mm-hmm. you know which is which is not his idea of success but he he makes it a joke i i just i think that he had such better comebacks yeah than i just remember hearing travis's comeback it's like i've got a reply for you andrew if you think carlton football is a joke come play with us i'm like yeah he doesn't play football. That's a stupid comeback. I don't. <laughs> yeah. And again, I think that this sort of, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I feel like in society, we sort of like, especially in media, we're like, oh, that was such a good comeback, even though it's like really, really mean and really, really rude. But like, even in real life, like, those are really mean and hurtful things to say to people, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, we sometimes excuse it because it's funny. And again, obviously, like, media is one thing versus like real life you know but you do see andrew turn into this very like mean and spiteful person because of his exposure to fletcher yeah sure yeah yeah i wonder i wonder how he would have handled the situation if or that whole dinner scene if if he hadn't been in fletcher's band i think that's a really good question and i think we see that with the dad because at the very beginning of the scene one of the people says, oh, wow, this like food is really undercooked or overcooked or something to the dad. And it's that's really mean to say to someone, you know, yeah. but the dad just sort of rolls with it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. And I think that you would have seen I, I think that that is a really good juxtaposition to how um, Andrew reacts very uh, like aggressively. And again, I think that I don't think that it's necessarily great to sort of like laugh off mean things that are said to you. I think that it's valid and you should sort of um, address those feelings and like have an adult conversation about them. But I, on the other end, I don't think that you should like verbally denigrate other people because you're upset, you know? One thing I thought was really interesting was when Andrew decides to go play at the JVC competition and he's with the band and Fletcher walks in. I'm sure you noticed this, but Fletcher is incredibly nice to the band. Yeah. He comes in, he's like, hey, gang, which every other time Fletcher has come into a room, like you mentioned, he bursts the door open. He's cussing at the people, slinging insults. He comes into this band and he's like, hey, gang, I just want to say that like there's a lot of people out there and like just do your best because they can really, you know, make one phone call and your life can change, but like have fun very much a different feel than how he greeted his other band. And as an, as a viewer for the first time, I was like, is this real? Did he really learn his lesson? But I was so on edge the whole time. Like yeah. I, I was very skeptical. And then when you find out that it's like a sting operation pretty much, but I, I think that that goes back to your idea of like, who's the real person. I think that, because you see Fletcher intentionally use this very like kind and docile 
part of his identity in very specific thought out contexts where it benefits him and where it sort of lulls Andrew into a sense of security. I, and you sort of see this with abusers in real life. Like a lot of times when an abuser is abusing someone and then the survivor comes out and tells people that they're being abused, a lot of times people will be like, oh, but that person, he's so nice. Like, how could he ever abuse you? And it's a very much an intentional move by many abusers to like, create a social image of themselves that is very counter reflective of like who they are to the victim that they're abusing. And so to me, that again, just speaks to the fact that at his core, Fletcher is an abuser and he knows what he's doing when he's sort of lulling people into thinking he's like this really nice person. Yeah. And, um, it's all a part of the game. Yeah. At the end of the day, he doesn't change and he just is a very mean and spiteful person. And, wants to wants to do harm and hey if we get a great musician out of this cool but i don't think his end goal is necessarily to get a great musician because i think he could have gotten great musicians um a lot less in less abusive ways i think his primary goal whether he believes it or not is to be in a situation where he can just be a horrible person and get away with it interesting Uh, because while you were talking i kind of started thinking oh maybe the real fletcher is the last five minutes of the movie (laughs) with that excitement of of having this equal and finally creating the next charlie parker in his mind yeah man i think people are complex maybe it's a mix of both but i i don't think that the abusive part of fletcher is i think that that is like the primary person of who he is and maybe having making the next charlie parker might be a like a side benefit of being able to be a horrible person. <laughs> Maybe. I guess I don't know for sure. Something uh, really interesting to me that just kind of like sparked a question. Do you think that this whole story for Andrew is more of a Stockholm syndrome type of thing? Or do you think it is a love story? Do you think he finally found his his true love, his, his partner, not necessarily true love. Like he's probably not attracted to Fletcher, but do you think that he's finally found like his, his partner in life? I mean, I think that those things can coexist, right? Like Stockholm syndrome is inherently that you sort of quote unquote, find your partner, but your partner is (laughs) abusive or whatever. So I think that those things coexist. True, 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 true. I don't know. I think it's really interesting because the scene where Fletcher invites Andrew to come play for him, Andrew doesn't immediately accept. Right. He's like, what about Tanner? What about Connolly? What about whatever? And I think to me that sort of suggests that Andrew realizes that Fletcher is not good for him. Mm. But at the end of the day, his desire to be like one of the greats overwhelms his desire to be like mentally and emotionally stable. And I think that this, again, kind of a a major theme is like, should, is it better to sort of like coast along in life and like be okay? Or is it better to sort of go out in a blaze of glory? And that's kind of a, a theme that's explored in this. And that part where he sort of re-enters the abusive relationship with Fletcher is just adds another level of nuance to, to that, that I really thought was interesting. I wonder if his allowance for this abuse kind of comes from his father as well and his lack of confidence because you can see all throughout the movie him looking at his father being walked over mm-hmm. and 
definitely looking at his face, Andrew's just like, I am not letting that happen to me anymore. Because first time we see that with Jim, his dad, (laughs) is at the movie, and a guy's walking by with popcorn and knocks Jim over the head, and Jim turns and apologizes, which is stupid. And you can see it on Andrew's faces. I would have 100% apologized, by the way. (laughs) You would have been Jim in that scenario? I think it would have been more of like a gut reaction of saying sorry, but... um, I don't think I would have said sorry. I think I would have just looked over. On the scale of Jim to Fletcher, I'm very much more a Jim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't have said anything. I like, I just wouldn't have said anything. I probably would have looked over and just like had a, like a pissed off look on my face. I think that's how I would have handled it. But the guy would have never seen me probably because obviously he didn't care because yeah. he didn't apologize. And then, and then, of course, you see it later on when Uncle Frank is making fun of his cooking and he's just laughing it off. And you can see also with Andrew, it's just like... <laughs> no thanks and so that's why i think he's more like uh symbiotic i guess with fletcher because maybe he feels to a degree that fletcher's bringing him into success is going to get him out of that um kind of pattern i guess that jim has never been able to find himself out of and also it might stem really far back with the fact that his mother left him when he was a kid so he doesn't even know his mom yeah and maybe he kind of takes that into it of like oh like she walked all over dad and it's really goes deep with him i don't know yeah yeah i mean i think that like obviously the the focus of this movie is on the relationship between andrew and fletcher but yeah i think jim acts as a really good narrative foil to fletcher because fletcher is clearly this like aggressive abusive manipulative problematic person But I think Jim, too, in a sense, has a problematic personality in the fact that, like you said, he lets people walk all over him. Like, and we are seeing Andrew sort of like have to toe the line between these two male role models in his life. Because I I mean, obviously, Jim compared to Fletcher, Fletcher, I would say is more problematic because he's like literally doing harm to people around him, whereas Jim is more just like harm to himself. But there's definitely a way to like stand up for yourself and like exist in the world where you can take up the space that you deserve to take up. But Jim doesn't do that. Whereas Fletcher overly does that. And I think it's just, again, it's like a very interesting commentary about like how to exist in the world. I also think we haven't really talked about this, but I definitely think there are some solid undertones about masculinity in today's day and age, because very much we see masculinity as like, well, toxic masculinity, at least as like very um, aggressive and take what you want and take no prisoners type stuff. And we see that very quote unquote masculine behavior in Fletcher. But then we also see how his toxic masculinity is negatively impacting people around him to the point that it is at least implied that it was a contributing factor to Sean Casey's suicide. Right, because his anxiety um, started Mm -hmm. up or whatever um, when he joined the band. Yeah. I should probably say right now, I should have maybe said it earlier, I might sound like I'm defending Fletcher. I'm not. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. I'm not defending like his his method. Um, I'm definitely not defending that. I I just want to. Just when you said that, I just kind of wanted to put that out there to make sure that's like I don't I don't think Fletcher's a good person. I think he's he's really messed up. I just think that he believes he's a good person. I agree. And I, that it's worth it. I also think he's a good I also think he thinks he's oh, a good person. Oh, you think he's a good person? <laughs> I think 
he thinks he's yeah, a good yeah. person. <laughs> and this movie just kind of, I don't know if you've heard the saying before, but like people who go to therapy are in therapy because the people around them were never in therapy. <laughs> that sort of is what this reminds me of because if Fletcher had gone to therapy, obviously we're speaking in generals here, but like hopefully he would be able to work through all of this really like toxic behavior but because he isn't in therapy doing this level of self-reflection and change that is necessary, he's literally impacting probably hundreds of people who are then, if they're not in therapy, impacting hundreds more. And so huh. that's just kind of what I th- was thinking about is like how one like really toxic, problematic person who goes unchecked can have these like cascading effects on so many other lives that aren't even necessarily tied to his, but they're like secondary and tertiary impacts. Oh man, that's really interesting. I mean, even Jim would probably benefit from going to therapy because oh, for it sure. seems like he's got to work through a lot of issues. Not, not nearly as much. I think everyone should be in therapy. Yeah, probably. I think that we always, like, society always jokes that, like, oh, you only need to go to therapy if you're messed up. Honestly, I think everyone should go to therapy. And maybe it's because we all exist in the world and the world is sort of a messed up place. But I agree with you. I think that everyone in this would benefit from therapy because everyone benefits from therapy. Yeah. Something really interesting about Jim is just going back to, like, the whole popcorn and raisinets thing, just because I mentioned Jim, (laughs) it just reminded me of this. And, and we already talked about it a little bit, the fact that uh, Andrew just picks around it. It's it's interesting to see that he lets the dude hit him with the popcorn and he apologizes for him. And then a couple seconds later, he notices that Andrew's not even eating the raisinets. And he's just like, "How? Like, why aren't you eating the raisinets? I'm like, oh, I don't like them. He's like, oh, well, why didn't you just say so? He's like, I just eat them around him. It's fine. And And then he says, I don't understand you. I think it's so ridiculous because it's like, dude, he gets that from you. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but I mean, I I agree. It's kind of like a funny scene. But just as the way that Fletcher thinks that he's a good person, I don't think that Jim is aware of this part of his himself and particularly how it's impacting his son. I don't think if Jim were to define himself, I don't think that he would really say like, oh, yeah, I'm this big pushover who like can't ever stand up for himself. I just I don't think that Jim is aware of himself. And I don't think that he's aware of how that's impacting his son, which, again, is why they should all be in therapy. <laughs> he's also not aware of, like, what's important to his son. Like, he just doesn't understand it, and he doesn't seem to really try to understand it. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like that first part with the Raisinets and, oh, I don't understand you kind of sets the cadence for that. He just he doesn't really seem to try. And, and also, like, you see that at the dinner table, because he also kind of joins in and is like, because that last... That last, like, really, uh, like, piercing insult that's said at the table before Andrew leaves is, oh, in Lincoln Center, after, you know, four words you'll never hear from the NFL, and then and then Jim says, and from Lincoln Center, which I think was, like, really cutting, you know? He just really doesn't understand why, why Andrew cares so much about this, but it's his passion, and he doesn't even seem to try and it's just ah it's just so sad it's like dude yeah and and so that kind of leads in actually to my biggest question that i walk away from in this film because anyone could ask like oh what what happens afterwards for andrew and flesher do they do they keep working with each other like do they end up becoming great does does andrew end up dying you know at 34 (laughs) drunken alone or or what does he find love but i think the bigger question or at least the one that i'm I'm most interested in 
is what are the emotions in Jim's head the last time we see him when he sees his boy playing his his huge solo? Because I have a really hard time trying to interpret what might be going through his head. There, There's almost a look of awe. There's almost a look of horror. <laughs> like, what is this? Like, this boy has sold himself to this obsession. Like, I could see all sorts of different things in his face because he really has this stunned face where you just like what is going on in your head Jim are you proud of your boy are you excited for him do you finally understand like all of this do you understand how talented your boy actually is you know what I mean like what do you think or maybe you didn't even pick up on that maybe you didn't even care about his face at the end but I did yeah I mean I I definitely picked up on the fact that like Andrew runs off stage and his dad is there to like hug him and Andrew like leans into the hug but he doesn't fully embrace his dad back he sort of is just like this defeated slouch into his dad's shoulder but to me I feel like Andrew or um his dad is driven by good intentions I think he's concerned for his son and he wants his son to be happy and healthy but he won't ever fully understand like this drive that Andrew has to be one of the greats. And I think that he has like this, it's like, to me, what I see is like helpless concern. Like he wants to be there for his son and he wants his son to be okay, but he does not know how to be there for him. And he just hopes that his son will like make it out. Yeah. However that may be. I just think that I would describe the dad as sort of being feeling really helpless, but feeling very concerned. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I would love, I actually, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a nobody, so uh, nothing came of it, but I like tweeted out. <laughs> I was like, could someone put me in, in contact with Damien Chazelle? Cause I would love to have him on the show so that I could actually understand some of the things that are going on in this film. But yeah, I, I, I think it's really hard to come to a conclusion on on Jim's face at the end. For me, that's really important. I think the word that we've used a lot throughout this episode is intentional. Yeah. From the dialogue to the cinematography to the uh, even the inflection and the tone and all the different things is very intentional. And I think that people will take away very different messages and very different interpretations. And I think that that is very interesting about this movie but like I said I I enjoyed it and I'm definitely glad that I watched it it's just definitely like a very dark and heavy and serious movie that you need to like be prepared for to rewatch it I would say no yeah for sure it's it's really complicated because I feel like a lot of people have like there's I mean I don't want to say this definitively but in my head there's like two different types of people of like or not two different everyone has their own idea of success right and I think that people need to try harder to let others just kind of live their success in their way. You know, if you want to be a serial killer, you can be a serial killer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if that's your idea of success is killing a massive amount of people, you know, live out that dream. I'm just kidding. That's there's definitely there's definitely like a decisive like horror horrors in this world that you can't justify whatsoever (laughs) yeah like people should be able to live their lives in a way that makes them happy and healthy as long as as long as it's not doing harm to other people yeah and as long as it's not doing harm to themselves and i think that that's kind of what this movie is addressing is like okay maybe fletcher andrew engaging in a relationship with fletcher isn't hurting anyone but andrew 
But at the end of the day, should his loved ones like allow that to continue? And I mean, that's a question that we don't really have an answer for. That's yeah. That uh, yeah, we don't because at the same time, like maybe to everyone else, it seems like it's a terrible relationship or or friendship or whatever um, between Fletcher and Andrew. But at the same time, maybe this is the happiest that Andrew's ever been. Yeah. And so it's not, it's not necessarily up to you to decide if this actually makes Andrew happy or not. Yeah. I mean, clearly there's moments where it doesn't because he gets in the car accident and, you know, and, and, and tackles him to the ground and he's really pissed off in that moment. But one could maybe look at the the very end when Fletcher and him are like looking at each other, pleased with each other, smiling at each other. Maybe that's the happiest that they've ever been in their entire lives, and maybe it ends up being a great thing for them. Who who knows? I agree, and that's why I've never really liked the phrase like, oh, as long as you're happy, because people can be happy in very harmful contexts. I guess. Um, yeah. I always like... As long as you're healthy <laughs> and as long as you're healthy and happy, you know, maybe is a good addendum to that. But I, I definitely would say Andrew's relationship with Fletcher is not healthy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. But again, that's me defining what I think sort of the purpose of life is or like how you should live your life is you should live a way that's very intentional and that's very healthy for you and the people around you. Yeah. Not just physically healthy, but mentally, emotionally, all the different ways that we can and should be healthy. But I mean, we get very clear dialogue from Andrew that that's not what he sees as success. His version of success is dying at 34 drunk in an alley, but everyone knows your name, you know, and that's not my version of success, but that's Andrew's. And at the end of the day, Andrew has to make that decision for himself and hopefully his loved ones can help him when he needs help. But um, I think that just this film really explores the very complex nuanced, uh, relationships that sort of exist out there and this is a good sort of case study for that yeah and it's interesting to see like there are in history so many great people that came out of you know tragedy or you know just kind of terrible unhealthy um experiences not necessarily like this but like maybe on the same kind of level as this i don't think you can argue that it's unhealthy or harmful but i think you could make an argument for but would it have happened without that experience in their life? It's, I mean, the, 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 I mean, there's the whole idea of the butterfly effect. If, if, and this is a quote that was actually really interesting to me. Like, there's, there's no two words more harmful than good job or whatever. That's actually a really interesting quote because for a lot of people, I think that definitely is true, or maybe not definitely is true. But I think that there are some people who do get good job and they don't progress anymore because they think they're doing a good job but people are just being nice to them and then there are people that do a better job because they are being told good job and then there's people that um that don't get a good job and that pushes them to want to try harder i uh, there's no knowing for sure if any other way would have brought them there to the exact same point in their life and and yeah i i just don't think that I think that you could argue that maybe we wouldn't have some of the greats without some of the tragic, you know, events that they may have gone through in their life. Yeah. I think that that's a valid statement. And then the question you have to ask is, does that therefore justify sure. those things, you know, and something you, we, I don't think I talked about this yet, but you were talking about, um, when we were talking about the very end scene 
And I mentioned that why did Fletcher sort of intentionally like embarrass Andrew if the point is to like create the next uh, Charlie Parker? Why did he intentionally embarrass him? One thing that I've really, really liked about this ending was like Fletcher's argument for all this abuse is like he wants to create, um, you know, great musicians. But I really like that. Throughout the movie, Fletcher does a lot of like hand gestures um, of like, you know, he closes his fist to like stop the music and everyone's really, really obedient to that. And when Andrew's sort of in this groove of doing this really great drum solo, Fletcher closes his hand to signify, hey, this it's over. And Fletcher keeps on going or excuse me, Andrew keeps on going. And I really like that scene because for me, and that's why I said this earlier, I think that Andrew becomes one of the greats um, in spite of the abuse and not because of the abuse. And Mm. Fletcher closing his palm and Andrew continuing to me shows Andrew saying like, I am here because of me. I'm not here because of you. I'm here because of me. I have power over my life. I have control over my own life. You don't get to determine when I stop playing. Like I am in charge of myself now. And to me that Hmm. I just really like what I saw as symbolism there because Fletcher's whole thing is like, Oh, I'm abusing you because I want to make you great. But then Andrew does no longer gives him that power. Yeah. And I think that that was, to me, that was really cool. Uh, that's super interesting. It's like when people are made great, it's because there's probably a very specific point in their life where they seize control over their destiny. And, but what led them to want and to push themselves to seize that control is very different for every single person. Man, mm-hmm. so interesting. What a yeah, what a freaking movie, dude. Yeah, and I also want to preface all of that by saying I think it's completely acceptable and good even to abuse people. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> to live your life and not want to be great. I think that living a mediocre but healthy and enjoyable life oh, yeah. is a completely fine level of living your existence like I think especially in like a capitalist society where we tie like inherent human value to how productive you are and how successful you are. um, It's really easy to get lost in that hustle. And it's like, oh, if I didn't, you know, make X amount of dollars today or work X amount of hours or like do some sort of side hustle or hobby, like I'm useless and today was wasted. But like for me, I think we need to step back from that mindset and be like, okay, that's great that Andrew wants to be one of the greats, but like, it's also fine just to want to be mediocre and be normal. And you kind of talked about that earlier saying like, everyone should be able to define success however they want. Um, So that's great that Andrew wants to be successful and hopefully people who are driven and want to be one of the greats, they can get there in a very healthy way for themselves and those around them. But also for all the other people out there like me who just want to like primarily live an enjoyable life that, reduces harm and is healthy and you know equitable to all other people that's also just as honorable of a pursuit yeah yeah i 100 percent agree i mean it kind of goes like something that's always um, pretty present in in a lot of like couples lives and stuff is is if you're gonna have kids or not right or when you're gonna have kids and something that i always think is is so odd and, and peculiar to me is is when people say like, oh, you need to have kids right now or whenever, like define like when, like there's 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 a specific cutoff. You must have kids by this point. I think like if anyone plans on having kids, I think it's totally OK 
to put your career first and then focus on having kids. I think it's, it's completely up to the individual and, and this just kind of loosely ties into it a little bit, but it's just, it's more of a decision of like, well, okay, well, would you rather enjoy your twenties or would you rather enjoy your forties slash fifties? Like that's kind of what it comes down to. Like you can, you could live your life. You can enjoy college. You can enjoy pursuing your career and then find someone to marry, or maybe you're married as well and then have kids or you could, maybe you just really can't wait and you want to have a family now. And that's totally fine. Just know that it's probably going to push back your career a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like to me, you do not have to be productive to have value, whether that's, you know, career wise or family wise, anything like that. Like humans have value inherently because we are human and you do not have to contribute X amount to society to be worthy of love and worthy of comfort and worthy of living a healthy, happy life. And I think that that gets lost a lot, um, in this sort of pursuit for excellence. Uh, but like for me at the end of the day, like it's okay to be mediocre. There's nothing (laughs) wrong with that. We are mediocre people after all. Exactly. Talking about films. Well, cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to discuss before I just kind of go through some trivia and stuff that I found interesting? Uh, nope. Let's hear the trivia. Okay, cool. Well, I did want to say uh, a funny moment that I really thought was uh, awesome was at the very beginning of the movie when Fletcher is seeing whether or not Andrew is worthy enough to join the band and Andrew just kind of gets lost in drumming a little bit and trying to stay on time and then looks up and notices that Fletcher's gone. And then he's just like really crestfallen for a second. And then the door opens. And he's like, oh. and he, he gets back in position. Like I'm ready to play again. And then Fletch is like, oopsie daisy, forgot my jacket. I thought that that was actually really funny. Although it's like messed up, but it was just kind of funny. Like what a slap in the face, dude. <laughs> Setting the ground roots for the abuse. He's gonna. <laughs> yeah. It was just like the, I think the delivery of it was just like, oh, that's funny. Oopsie daisy. He was just like so cheerful about it. It's messed up. Okay. Some trivia. Uh, this film was shot in 19 days. Isn't that crazy? Wow. 19 days. That's all they would give them, apparently. Like, they wouldn't give them any more than 19 days to, to film this this movie. No wonder I was stressed out the whole time. <laughs> like, it was filmed out. under extreme duress. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. That was something that I saw from, like, a behind-the-scenes thing or some kind of interview, you know, like, panel thing that they were doing for the movie. And that's actually one of the trivia items as well. They worked themselves, like, so hard. You know, to get this done, a lot of late nights that actually um, Damien Chazelle, the director and writer, got in a car accident because he was, <laughs> yeah, which is hilarious because I, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I saw anywhere if he put the car accident in the movie because of that experience. I'm guessing it was already written in. Otherwise, that whole scene of him going on stage wouldn't have been as important if he, if Naaman hadn't gotten in the uh, car accident. But but that was just a funny little That's so funny though. You know, like a self-prophesized like type of thing because he put that in the movie. And and because Naaman was so obsessed and overworked that he himself ended up getting in a car accident because he was overworked on the film. Hilarious. During the most intense practice scenes, the director, Damon Chazelle, wouldn't yell cut so that Miles Teller would keep drumming until he exhausted himself. Which is That's it's kind of messed up. It's kind up. of messed up, but at the same time, like I noticed that a lot throughout the film. Like, Miles looks really exhausted, you know, playing. So, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, method acting. I don't know. (laughs) Um, For the slapping scene, J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller filmed several takes with Simmons only miming the slap. And for the final take, Simmons and Teller decided to 
um, film the scene with a real genuine slap. And that's the one, obviously, that made it into the film. I, I just thought it was funny because I remember watching the scene. I'm like, that looks like a real slap. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I was like, that looks like a real slap. His face is like turning red. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm not surprised that it turned out. That's kind of interesting, too. But yeah, I mean, I mean, it was between the two actors that they decided to do that. Yeah, I guess it would be a little bit of a different story. It was like Dave and Chazelle was like, you have to slap each other. <laughs> it's, it's in your contract. <laughs> yeah, I will pay you five thousand extra dollars. Uh, and then. Miles Teller uh, had played drums since he was 15. He actually received real blisters on his hands due to the vigorous, unconventional style of jazz drumming. Interesting. And he talks about that as well. So, and, and it also says some of his blood was on the drumsticks and the drum set as a result. So Gross. some of it was actually real. Um, I saw too, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, the actor who plays Tanner is a professional drummer and he trained the other two drummers Connolly and Andrew yeah I wonder if any of this was frustrating for him like just watching them like mess up things probably a lot yeah but that's yeah that is interesting and I actually kind of before even seeing that I'm like Tanner looks way more professional than like like he looks like he's actually been doing this for a while because he has like this like I get this too and I so I can recognize in other people like when you play an instrument you just kind of had like this resting face and for yeah. me, when I'm playing guitar, like my bo- my bottom lip like goes out more, <laughs> and it's like really weird. And you can see it in his face; he gets like he totally gets in the zone. So it totally makes sense. The f- <laughs> this is funny. the f- The film is one of the lowest grossing films ever to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. <laughs> wow! I mean, it makes sense. Interesting. It only made. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like for them, it was a lot of money, but yeah, it's like fifty million, right? Yeah, it wasn't like a ton. Um, compared to a lot of other films. But, that's, I mean, hey, it doesn't mean that it wasn't great. Oh, so when Miles Teller tackled J.K. Simmons, he actually cracked a couple of ribs. <laughs> wow. Uh, Miles Teller did? No, uh, he, he cracked J.K. Simmons' ribs. <gasps> wow. Yeah, and, and he just kept going through it. That's nuts. I mean, they only had 19 days to shoot. What are you going to do? <laughs> but that's wild. Yeah, he does a good job. Oh yeah, that whole yeah. We I mean we already talked about the deleted scene, but the guy who played Jim convinced Damien Chazelle not to put the scene in the film. And I actually kind of agree, Fletcher being alone. I agree. Because apparently apparently Andrew is in every single scene of the film and it would have been J, uh, Jim's argument for uh, against putting that scene in the film was that would have totally broken up the flow. And yeah, I I Yeah, I I agree with that. Yeah. Oh, the studio originally gave Damon Chazelle a note saying he's good at drumming. We get it. In an attempt to try and take out the ending drum solo, Chazelle disagreed and kept the drum solo in the film. What do you think about that? I wanted to ask you this. Did you feel like, because the last nine minutes is all drumming pretty much. Did you think that was too long or do you think it was perfect? I personally thought it was a little bit long, Okay, but I think it serves the purpose of the film. Okay, gotcha. I, I ate it all up. Every single bit of it. <laughs> yeah, but also I'm not a musician, so sure. I think that that's a lot of it different is because I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. You're really good at drumming, but I think that it very much serves the whole purpose of the movie. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, yeah, because for me, it's like, that's his Charlie Parker moment, and we need to see every bit of it. I don't know. But um, And then the last thing that I wrote down, in an interview with Screen Crush, Damon Chazelle stated the ending implied Andrew's future 
would be like Charlie Parker, where he would rather die drunk and broke at the age of 30. So even he thinks that Andrew's probably just going to end up dying early. <laughs> I mean, that's how Andrew defines success. So it is what it is. I guess one thing that I kind of wanted to ask, it's and why I would love to talk to Damon Chazelle about this. I wonder how many of these experiences are actually accurate because this is all based off of, not all, but a lot of the experiences in this movie are based off of his own personal experiences. I wonder how many of the things that he wrote in there that Fletcher says was stuff that he heard. I would not be surprised if a lot of the dialogue, the abusive dialogue was like real, because I think that that is how a lot of men in power will refer to uh, men who are underneath them. There was a lot of like sexist and homophobic language that was used to like insult them. And that's again, this kind of goes back to toxic masculinity. That's very much, um, unfortunately, like a common occurrence, I would say, in male-dominated spaces. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that there's not a single woman in his band. Oh, I don't remember. I was going to say something off of that, but but that's okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. L- lovely film. <laughs> yeah, I would say this film is definitely worth watching at least once. Um, like I said, it's very uh, like serious and very somber at times, but it also is like beautifully shot, beautifully filmed, has really nuanced messages. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I watched it at least once, you know. That's good. Yeah, I, I just remember the thing that I was going to say about um, uh, Damon Chazelle just going off of that thing. Um, it was... Interesting to see in one of the panels, someone, the last question of the panel that I saw, someone asked him, was like, hey, so how come, how come you didn't keep drumming? Like, why'd you switch over to, <laughs> why, it's just kind of, I've, I, he probably felt stupid asking the question afterwards. It's just like, oh, how, well, like, what made you switch over to uh, becoming a director and writer? And then Damien's just like, the whole movie? I don't know. <laughs> it's like the entire thing. This was what I dealt that's with. So funny. That's why I decided not to. That's funny. Continue with that. So that's funny. Yeah. Good movie, though. Glad that you recommended it. Yeah. Oh. And I'm excited for next month's movie. Yes. So, yeah, the next film, would you like to introduce it? Yeah, I don't know any of the details, but the next film we're going to be watching is the original Alien. Okay. That's what I wanted to... I wanted to make sure, because there's Alien and then there's Aliens, and I was just like... Which one specifically is it? It's the animated Aliens versus Monsters. <laughs> no. <laughs> Alien. So the original. Yeah, ni- 1979. Okay, yep. Okay, that's, yeah, that's the Sigourney good Weaver. Sigourney Weaver, Ridley yeah. Scott directed it. It is, again, <laughs> like all great movies are, rated R. Uh, but is it? It is streamable on Prime Video if you have that. So we have a free-ish option to watch this movie. So, yeah, get ready for that. So that'll go up on the 7th of February. So get ready. Watch Alien. Not Aliens. Alien, 1979 by Ridley Scott. Um, if you want to get ready for the next film on Prime Video, you can stream it. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to send in questions to the podcast, you can send in, send them in to layersoffilmpod at gmail.com. Of course, follow Layers of Film Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, to know when new episodes go up or just uh, subscribe. Um, of course, this is up for Spotify and Apple Podcasts and most other um, podcast services. If you guys want to leave a review, go for that. If not, no hard feelings, I suppose. Thanks for listening. And 
yeah, I hope you guys had a great New Year's as well. Bye-bye. You don't want to say? <laughs> <laughs> I'll say something. Yeah, yeah. See ya. Mm-hmm.